Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Joining me today are... Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and... Dalibor Rohac, also with AEI. Our podcast is about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line that runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and why these are important to the United States. Today, we're going to just talk the three of us. It's been such an event-filled weekend since we last had an episode and since the three of us have closeted ourselves in these ways. So it's just us. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. We're going to start with something that's a little bit off azimuth for the Eastern Front, but we thought uh, was certainly related in a variety of secondary but still important ways, and that's the brutal uh, Hamas attack across Gaza into Israel and the mass casualties that have ensued and the chaos and the violence that have been sparked by that. I'll refrain from taking the moderator's prerogative to pontificate first. Dalibor, why don't you jump into the ring here, first of all? A few angles where we want to cover but but i would probably look at the big picture first in the you know u.s and western debate it strikes me that there is almost a sort of symmetrical blind spot that our friends on the left have relative to our friends on the right one with regard to israel and the other one with regard to ukraine i mean it has become almost impossible for you know many people on the conservative right in the united states to sort of articulate why the fight that ukraine is leading is a you know, just fight and why it's an existential struggle and why Ukraine is in the right. And similarly, I think one of the reminders that, that the events of this weekend provided us with is that similarly, many people on the left seem to be congenitally unable to condemn violence and terrorism and, and mass atrocities. I mean, the number of people who have jumped immediately to sort of provide context and rationalize why Hamas did what it did, maybe animated by good intentions, but really diluted the, the, the sort of sense of moral clarity that, that we need. I mean, there is, you know, the talk of, of whatever grievances Palestinians might have with the settlers or, or whatnot is just completely immaterial to, to, to what happened over the weekend. And those who sort of dilute the conversation with these, you know, historic sort of excursions into what happened in 48 or, or whenever just are distracting our attention in a way that we would not find acceptable in any other situation. You know, if it were the conversation that, that we would be otherwise having about the war in Ukraine, like if somebody was talking about like, you know, language laws in Ukraine, it, it, it's just not a valid sort of contribution to, to the conversation that revolves around, you know, Russians massacring civilians. And in the same way, it's not a valid contribution to, to a debate about what Hamas did. And I think I think it really is important to sort of be able to sort of step back and look at the big picture that, that Hamas is a sort of client organization of Iran, of other bad actors in the region, which I think and this is important from our perspective, share the interest in destabilizing, eroding, destroying whatever is left of the 
rules-based international order. And I think it has to be sort of taken in that context that if we if we are weak in Ukraine, if we are weak on Israel, it only encourages others to, to take the same path. And and I think we have to sort of, you know, see this onslaught in different parts of the world as, as, as part of the same broad story in which, I mean, the West and the United States doesn't seem to be stepping up in a way that, that the sort of circumstances call for. And, and we just need to do better. Let me let me ask all of us to focus on on the, your concluding point. It does seem to me that yes, there are excesses of the left and the right, but there's also a weakness in the liberal center, if you will. And these are sort of two sides of the same coin. It does seem to me that we used to believe that the arc of history bent inevitably in a liberal direction, and particularly that it wasn't necessary to use military power and traditional statecraft to ensure its continuance. So it seems to me like there is not only a need to sort of stand athwart the craziness at the extremes, but also to try to rally the base, as it were, to energize the vast majority of people who live safely and peacefully and prosperously under this. And I suppose, and the complacency of sorts. I mean, there is a sort of sense, like if you follow people who are friendly to the administration, is, is that, you know, like everything that's being done is, is sort of framed in this progress in sort of small steps at the margin, you know, navigating difficult trade-offs. Like there is almost a sort of Merkelian sense that there is no alternative to sort of clever technocrats, like making these little tweaks and, oh, like now we have to make sure that Middle East doesn't get out of control and we certainly don't want to escalate with Iran. And, and you know, in the same way, we want to like help Ukraine, but not too much so that Putin doesn't have a reason to escalate. And, and I think it's, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's profoundly misguided, but it's also the case that, I mean, it's, it's sort of revelatory of the blind spots that these people have. And I think those blind spots would be better exposed in a, perhaps in a less polarized political environment and in a, in a, in a way we could sort of still have intelligent disagreements that are conducive to people learning as opposed to just shouting at each other. But that's probably subject for another podcast. That's us sounding a little bit like we're all looking back at the good old times. But I want to add a couple of things here and maybe that can bridge us to the broader transatlantic issues and then a little bit of Biden criticism, because we cannot do this episode without that, which will then help us navigate into the Eastern Front itself. But a couple of things to throw out there. The first one is what you, Dalibor, mentioned at the beginning, and I think it's worth underlining, and that is the common ideology, motivation that drives Hamas, has driven Hamas this weekend, and that we have a problem in the center, seeing clearly, and how that links exactly to Russia and to others beyond the hypotheticals and speculations of how Hamas trained and whether it was just Iran or also maybe Russia extending a hand. Beyond that, the fact is that people in Israel have been attacked in the most horrendous way ever seen in the history of Israel for the same reason that Putin invades Ukraine, because Israelis and Ukrainians are too Western. They love too much freedom and democracy, and, and that legitimates um, in one way or another, including by our center when they 
try to point to the two sides, uh, these attacks in one way or an another. Any sentence that starts with, I cannot justify the atrocities, however, and then talking about Western values in one form or another, to me, already sounds all the alarm bells. And it is striking to me how it's not just a pundit here and there in the center that is supposed to have a clearer sight. It's not just the administration. It's entirely the Western or most of the Western media and how they're covering either what is happening in Israel and increasingly, very much increasingly, what is happening in Ukraine. And of course, that then drives us into the issue of fatigue here. Can we do one without doing the other? Actually, I want to pick up on something that you just concluded before we transition. It does seem to me that both for the Russians and for Hamas, the barbarity is the point to a certain degree. It's both a means to terrorize and to achieve power, but there's just an animal urge there. And they know that it'll have the effect of intimidating Westerners who believe the world is run according to Robert's Rules of Order and the laws of war and civilized practices. You know, our inability to stare the evil in its face is a real weakness of ours and a powerful tool for which Hamas is clearly exploiting intentionally. And so are the Russians. I mean, there has been a cascade of stories throughout the war about Russian barbarities uh, in Ukraine, and it doesn't register anymore. You know, it doesn't make the news. I mean, I don't want to sound like a preacher, but there is, I think, like in, in the views of many, something uncouth about framing, you know, world affairs in in terms of good versus evil, right? And it's always sort of more comforting to think of, you know, all these complexities and, you know, this like history and, and all shades of gray. It's, it's all very complicated. Like, you know, you can't possibly understand what's going on unless you have at least the masters in, in Middle Eastern studies. Uh, and, and I think that is not working to, you know, the West's advantage in this, this sort of mindset in, in our, you know, in the pursuit of our long-term strategic interests whether it's in Ukraine or the Middle East. And I'm, I'm dreading the day when, and you know, the, the, the day might come sooner rather than later, when China realizes that this might be a good opportune moment to, you know, do something. And despite all this sort of heralded bipartisan unity on China, I'm very much doubtful that, that anybody will be able to speak with any sort of moral clarity about, you know, the status of Taiwan or if anything happens in South Korea or, or wherever. I think the usual suspects will be sort of looking for ways out for you know, reasons why this really isn't of any concern. If I can add a couple of things that I think illustrate that, and then I promise we'll stop and, and transition. There's a video that went around this weekend of a singer or a group of singers in the Palestinian territories uh, singing at a wedding. And the song is about how Putin should harden his heart and commit more atrocities so that the Palestinians can marry more Ukrainians and call to China to invade Taiwan because this will punch the Americans in the nose and will basically harden this perspective of the anti-Western common world ideology. Before we move off this topic completely, I think it's worth addressing one 
practical argument that has been made, which is this notion that there is somehow a trade-off between helping Ukraine and helping Israel. So, so Josh Hawley, U.S. Senator from Missouri, made this argument on Twitter today, saying that Israel is facing an existential threat, and as a result, any funding directed to Ukraine should be redirected to Israel immediately. I think those are those are his own words. And, and obviously, Senator Hawley is a demagogue and is acting in bad faith. But I wonder, especially Giselle, whether you think there might be any merit to the notion that there are trade-offs. So, so one story that I've heard over the weekend is that you know there is a stockpile of weapons in Israel, which belongs to the United States. Apparently in January, 300,155 millimeter shells have been sent from that stockpile to Ukraine. You know, is there anything that you know, the Israelis might now find wanting because of, of these decisions. I mean, you know, are there any margins at which we have to sort of think about, you know, whether we engage here or there or or whether this is all nonsense, which is exploited for political gain? Actually, there's a much greater overlap between the kinds of systems that would be required for a Taiwan contingency and uh, the request that Israel has made and the steps that we have taken to help sort of calm things in the region. To begin with an example of the, to start with. So we have a very large carrier battle group in the Mediterranean. So that's actually our most modern aircraft carrier and a half dozen large surface warships and probably a couple of submarines. So that's moved into the Eastern Med. That's the kind of thing that would be useful in the Western Pacific. So to the degree that some things are tied down responding to the situation in Israel and the Middle East, and also there had been a formation of F-35 fighters, our most modern aircraft, that had been in the Middle East for some weeks and months, was in the process of being returned to the United States, but now has been turned back around to remain in the Middle East. And again, that's the sort of asset that would be in high demand for a China contingency. The Israelis own the skies over Gaza. They have lots and lots of ways to strike at targets in Gaza. So they don't need they don't need F-16s or ATACMs in the way that the Ukrainians do. And ironically enough, some of the other munitions that the Israelis have asked for is munitions for the Iron Dome air defense, point defense system, which are being lit off like the 4th of July every night to try to shoot down incoming rockets, not only from Gaza, but from southern Lebanon, from Hezbollah territory. So... That was a false dichotomy to begin with. And if anything, the current situation underlines how false it it was. And if you're the kind of person who thinks that you you have to have 100% of everything for a China contingency, you would be more worried about what's being employed and what's being delivered or transferred to Israel rather than Ukraine. And I think your larger point is, is really the important one, is the United States in order to behave as a a global leader and a global, a truly global power, has to be able to, this is the example that many of us have been warning about for years, that more than one thing might happen at once. God forbid that this crisis in the Middle East spirals into a larger conflict, 
but there are certainly a lot of, you know, interested participants or potential participants on the sidelines looking to make mischief, put it mildly. There seems to be this innate understanding now that no one dares to articulate in Washington, but yet it's almost becoming a given the more people insist it's either China or Russia, it's either Ukraine or Israel, that we do not want to do more than one thing at the same time, because you would think that the Ukraine war in the context of the the threat um, or challenge from China and now Israel would be justification enough to increase military spending and increase the level of ambition of the United States and determine a speech on both sides of the aisle to say we're now not anymore in a post-Cold War environment. Threats are coming from all sides and so we need more ample defense. And within that, and I'm curious as we're pivoting to Washington and then back to the Eastern Front, I'm curious what both of you think about the fact that I haven't seen it online yet. I've seen massive, from Saturday on, the entire world has been discussing the failure of Israeli intelligence um, on, on this that permitted this to happen. And I'm sure this is an unfolding story. But what about U.S. intelligence? Don't we have a responsibility and don't we have eyes in there? How come we're not talking about that in the context of Biden hasn't made a speech yet on bipartisan partisan support for Ukraine. And I haven't seen, except for concerns and statements of support um, from both the EU and the United States, I haven't seen any taking off responsibility and proposing a way forward so that these mistakes don't happen anymore. I don't see any reckoning on the Hill neither, by the way. I'm not so worried about trying to parcel out the blame for uh, the intelligence and leadership failures that led to this situation. But you brought up the fact, I mean, the president had announced last week that he was going to make a major Ukraine speech. It seems to me that the speech now has to go to a much broader, you know, it must include Ukraine. But the only response that would help to stem the slide of support or confidence in American leadership would be exactly the sort of thing you're talking about, the willingness not only to assert diplomatic leadership, but to undertake a serious rearmament so to be able to respond to simultaneous crises, you know, without moving troops and, you know, units around in this sort of shell game kind of a way. I mean, uh, Biden really, he's sort of dilly-dallied throughout the Ukraine war, uh, but now he's got a much larger challenge that I don't think he can cut in half or, you know, address sequentially. And the task is probably exponentially greater than it was a week ago. Or maybe I'm overreacting. I mean, it, it is a tricky situation because like, you would expect and want him to make rhetorically at least a compelling case for, you know, robust muscular internationalism for the United States being ready to stand with Ukraine and help Israel and and be sort of reliable partner, but it almost seems to me that that like he is not the best messenger for this, just by virtue of being who he is, and also that it comes 
at the political moment where if he does make such a case that might reflexively turn you know a growing cohort of republicans like against such a message that may already have happened. I mean, I mean, just think about this situation plus President Trump. I mean, the Republican Party has been haggling over whether to even keep the U.S. government open for crying out loud. And it's got a hold on several hundred general officer promotions. I mean, it looks completely unserious. If that's not an opportunity for the responsible senior leadership, bipartisan leadership to try to, you know, put the crazy back in the can. I don't know what more you want. The situation certainly demands it. And talk, uh, Dalib, we're, we're both looking at you. If you can ease us in via Slovak, your old home, and, uh, and then into what we're looking forward to, if anything, in the Polish election. So actually, uh, as we were chatting over this past half an hour, uh, the news transpired from Slovakia that in all likelihood Robert Fico will be the next prime minister, that he'll be for forming a coalition government. So, so one of his sort of junior coalition partners announced that those are the coalition talks that they are now leading with, with Fico and that they are not attempting to build any other alternative governing coalition. There was some residual uncertainty about this after the election. I don't think it's terribly surprising. I don't think it's hugely consequential domestically or internationally, it is very likely that Fico will now try to sort of extract some sort of a reward for, you know, every time he'll have to support Russia sanctions or allow transit of weapons or lethal aid through 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 Slovakia. It's very unlikely that he will kick out the NATO combat group, which is stationed in Slovakia. I don't think it's very likely. And he'll, he'll certainly have to throw some red meat to his base. He'll say no more lethal aid to Ukraine, while Slovakia has basically donated all our, all our rusty MiGs and artillery pieces are already in, in, in Ukraine anyway. There's a munition factory uh, in, in central Slovakia that's sort of churning out munition. I think, you know, that production will continue. That would be sort of politically self-defeating. To... And that's by contract anyway, and he would be killing jobs. You know, I think these people are very transactional. Like as long as it's the EU or, or some NATO fund that pays for this, they have no quibbles arming the Ukrainians. So, so I'm, you know, reasonably stoic about what this means for sort of Western unity. Poland, you know, there are good reasons to be similarly stoic about what happens to Poland after the election on Saturday. That said, the election campaign has been singularly nasty, unpleasant, and Ukraine has has been sort of dragged to the front line a couple of times, partly with the grain issue, partly with the sort of confrontation over, you know, the sort of complicated past between between Ukrainians and Poles as, you know, a SS officer got invited to Canadian House of Commons. Uh, that obviously didn't go down well in Poland. Um, but perhaps more seriously, just, I mean, you know, it's, it's also a polarized country in which the defense minister had no quibbles releasing decade-old defense plans for Poland prepared by his predecessor and using those as a sort of political prop, trying to make the argument that the previous government by, by Platforma was ready to give up half of Poland. I mean, it's a very irresponsible move on his part. Piece of demagoguery because these were different sort of contingency plans for a possible Russian invasion. And he sort of picked up on the on the worst case scenario and said that this was the plan of, of the Polish government all along under under the previous government and and, and that that's just I don't think that's a sort of civilized way of making you know political scoring political points. We saw the news this week of two top 
Polish generals, including the chief of general staff, Raymond Andrzejczak, resigning, who is a you know, very professional, very serious, very cerebral sort of figure. And I think that's a, you know, a net loss for the Polish armed forces. We don't really know why they resigned, but my hunch is that it has to do with, with sort of what's happening in the sort of civilian on the civilian and political side of, of the defense ministry. So that's not good news. I mean, we want Poland to be strong. We want, you know, Poles to have their act together. And I hope that that's what we'll get after after October 15th. I was going to say, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a really impressive, huge demonstration in Warsaw in support of the opposition and, you know, sort of with a we need to defend our democracy theme, uh, which was very heartening. And Dalibor, I don't know, from a distance, Duda looks like somebody who has got a finger to the wind all the time. So, again, I'm trying to find a bit of a silver lining here. I mean, in, in, this, in these opinion polls, I mean, it was a very, very impressive mobilization. So you had over a million people in Warsaw, and that's how it was sort of designed, right? the march of a million hearts, as they, as, they, as they called it. But when you look at the opinion polls, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be close. If I were to make a bet, I would probably say that, that the, the incumbents are more likely to stay in power than not. They won't be able to govern alone, which, like, if you are worried about the health of Poland's democracy, it's very hard to make the argument that after this election they'll be able to do things that they have not been able to do for the past decade domestically and attacks on the judiciary or media or whatnot. So, so I'm somewhat stoic about that. They will have to rely, you know, they will either have to form a coalition government with Confederacja, which is a sort of far-right, unhinged group, but I mean, it will make the coalition very fragile or they will have to rely you know, for, for a minority government that will rely on some of these sort of fringe votes in parliament. Poland has had experience with that kind of governing in the late northeast government that lasted for a year, brought down by a sort of similarly unhinged fringe group, uh, the the League of Polish Families. I mean, he was Andrzej Leppard, the leader of that movement, who, I mean, he killed himself later. He, he I think, gave the world a flavor of what sort of, you know, med gates like would look like down the road. If I can ask you a little bit about that. So basically, we're ex- the polls are showing the party in power, law and justice at around 35%. And then their main opposition, um, civic coalition at about 30%. And then we have three major fringy, some more fringy than others parties that would be enabling a coalition confederation, the one that you just mentioned, and then third way and the left. And so with that in mind, plus the resignations of the two top military um, today, earlier today, does that enable the possibility, unlike in Slovakia, of a coalition with the opposition party, with civic coalition, in a combination with another or two other parties that would basically shift the political landscape a little bit? Or is that less likely? I mean, I would probably still, like, you know, I wouldn't bet my money on it. It is possible that that we'll see sort of last minute sort of moves in in relative mobilization of the two camps. I have no idea about like how, you know, good polling is in Poland. I'm, you know, not an expert on on that issue. My hunch just, you know, is is that like resignations of two generals are not going to quite cut it and sort of bring the sort of opposition in in, in full force. I mean, but but you know, there might be other stories over the next three days coming from from either side that would have the potential of sort of moving 
moving the outcome of the election. I mean, I think, you know, it is going to be close. I mean, that, 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 that's for sure. Let me ask one more thing before we end this episode, and that is with Slovakia. I think it's a legitimate question that we need to address, and I'm sure it won't be the first time, but with elections in Slovakia centered in a very negative way around Ukraine and with elections in Poland that are not centered around Ukraine, but nevertheless, law and justice has brought it up in the context of the grain issue, grain ban. Are we looking at a reduction in the voice, in the loudness of the voice, the credibility, the legitimacy of this phenomenon that we've seen over the last one and a half years, really historic here of Central and Eastern Europe coming together and enforcing support for Ukraine, enforcing solidarity with Western allies. I would argue not just in Western Europe, but also in the United States. I think the voices of the Baltics and Poland and Slovakia in the early days really mattered and Romania and others. And so are we seeing with pundits uh, enforcing that likely in the next few months, uh, going back to, oh, Central and Eastern Europe, you know, they're not mature democracies. They don't have their act together. Their support for Ukraine is self-undermining. And so that weakens the case for support for Ukraine overall. I, I, I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation, all things considered. I mean, we are in a different phase of the war than we were a year ago. And people's attention spans are limited and you know like the, the, the fact that like the, the grain issue has been such a such a central feature of of the polish debate and and the sort of insistence that yes we want to help ukraine insistence by by peace officials the the the, the governing party that that yes we want to help ukraine but not at the expense of our own interest even though those interests were you know very parochial and very limited to a constituency that is critical for for the Law and Justice Party, but I don't think in any meaningful sense translates into wider Polish national interest. So the fact that you've seen this in in a place like Poland is is, is worrying. In Slovakia, again, like I'm somewhat calm about what's coming, but but it is pretty clear that helping Ukraine will not be a priority for the coming government. I mean, this coming government will not be proactively pushing Western allies to do more and and step up. It will be reluctantly following the lead of others. And, and and so I think the more stories of this kind you see in Central and Eastern Europe, the the weaker indeed the region becomes. The Polish government would only be following the uh, autobahn on which the German government finds itself. Uh, Chancellor Schultz has given us another incidence of uh, Schultzing with his Hamlet-like decision or non-decision making on the Taurus cruise missiles. He's clearly waiting for President Biden to make up his mind about the U.S. ATACM system. So, you know, once again, we find ourselves in a situation that, that Europeans will be l reluctant to step out in front of an American-led alliance. So with that happy note, let us conclude. So from me, Giselle Donnelly, and my colleagues, Dalibor Rohach and Yulia Zhoja, thank you so much for joining us on the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along a line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes of the Eastern Front and additional content on our website, aei.org, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do be in touch with us on the artist formerly known as Twitter, using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod as one word. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Until next time, thank you.